Fishing for Fallen Light on the Kinship of Well-Being by Sean Perel. I have a quiet aversion to conversations about well-being. The term conjures images of privilege and appropriation, like the time I was instructed to wave a stick of incense at a merchandised altar before disrobing for a spa treatment. Over the years, I've heard many conversations in yoga studio lobbies devolve into insensitive recommendations for the latest bestseller on grief or a self-paced online course designed to transform. The word draws my attention to the thin line between holistic health and aspirations of self-optimization, control, and certainty. Quality is fine by me. I delight in an organic smoothie and I consider myself a connoisseur of pillows. I buy the beeswax candles from the uncapped display at the grocery store regularly. I've brokered in wellness my entire professional life, and I do believe in well-being. I want well-being for you and me and every living thing. What gets me is how ideas of wellness have become conflated with a cultural mythology around wealth. We are inundated by a profit industry built on the premise that we are not okay, and that buying something, anything, will change that. Our sense of well-being has become conflated with purchasing power. It's a cheap ordeal, and we know it. The epitome of what the Buddha pointed to as false refuge. Well-being can't be bottled and bought. We've tried that. We're mistrustful of being sold on miracle drugs, fad diets, and unverified health claims. We're tired of measuring ourselves by industry standards. A colossal industry, by the way, The global wellness industry was valued at over $4.5 trillion in pre-pandemic 2019, according to the Global Wellness Institute. Discourse on well-being can sound tone-deaf when juxtaposed with the existential challenges of our time. In the context of a growing disparity in health outcomes across income groups, for example, our cultural obsession with weight loss flaunts itself next to families unable to afford proper fruits and vegetables. We are a society of dissonance when it comes to well-being constantly trying to perfect ourselves while failing to meet the basic requirements for well-being as outlined by Maslow's objective hierarchy of physiological needs, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. But what exactly is well-being, we might ask? A standard definition refers to our holistic health as constituted by the vital interplay of our physical, emotional, social, environmental, and spiritual layers. Less a state than an integrative process, well-being is our access to a wholesome, creative, dynamic, and resilient sense of equilibrium. The word for well-being in Sanskrit is sukha, which shares an etymological root with our modern English words sucrose and sugar. So there's a flavor of sweetness to well-being. Its original context in the Vedas, according to Monier-Williams, refers to how well a chariot axle was positioned to maintain the rotational balance between wheels and support the chariot's weight, thus allowing it to move smoothly forward. Su means good and ka means aperture, to mean originally having a good axle hole. Things haven't changed much in that regard. Today, as always, a vehicle that has good suspension is what we want when traversing the rough roads we must travel. We are talking here about receptivity and steadiness, and also about order and flow. Among the early scriptures, sukkah is associated with shreya, meaning that which produces lasting benefit. In other words, it's enduring. Shreya is contrasted with preya, a word epitomizing immediate gratification. 
Modern researchers similarly differentiate hedonism, characterized by the instinct toward pleasure and away from pain, and eudonymism, a more lasting sense of fulfillment through growth and purpose. Well-being is measured by four convergent methods. The presence of positive emotions and absence of negative emotions, mature character traits including self-directedness, cooperativeness, and self-transcendence, life satisfaction or quality of life, and character strengths and virtues such as hope, compassion, and courage. These features interact cooperatively, such that a person cannot feel good as measured by positive emotions and life satisfaction without doing good as measured by maturity of character and virtuous conduct. Here's a simple case study for your consideration. Social psychologist Elizabeth Dunn of the University of British Columbia wanted to find out what kind of spending makes people happy. So she and colleagues surveyed 109 UBC students. Not surprisingly, most said they would be happier with $20 in their pocket than they would with five. They also said they'd rather spend the money on themselves than on someone else. But when Dunn's team gave 46 other students envelopes containing either a $5 bill or a $20 bill and told them how to spend it, those who donated to charity or bought a gift reported feeling happier at the end of the day than those who spent on themselves. Herein lies the distinction between self-indulgence and self-care. A benign expression of self-indulgence might be a well-earned treat like an ice cream cone with sprinkles or a Saturday afternoon lounging on the sofa. Self-indulgence is not necessarily unhealthy, though nor is it enduring. It is simply sensory delight, known as pomoja in Pali, and it can, in fact, be bought. Self-care, on the other hand, consists of the specific choices and behaviors that lead to a quality of feeling over time. Self-care is how we contribute to our own well-being at any given moment and under any given circumstance. It's any benevolent mechanism by which we nurture presence and alignment with our values. It's reflected in our intentions, actions, and habits, as well as in pausing to integrate and recalibrate. Self-care is setting boundaries to mitigate depletion when appropriate, and equally expanding beyond the habit of navel-gazing to show up for others. Many of us sense an undercurrent of disassociation beneath the surface of our lives. We feel more emotionally isolated than ever before, a phenomenon amply attested to by recent studies, including one ranging from 1990 to 2021, which indicated a 25% decrease in the number of Americans reported having five or more close friends. We long for more intimacy, connection, and belonging, but we've chosen social structures that reinforce individualism over community. Henry Ward Beecher posited that the art of being happy lies in the power of extracting happiness from common things. The practice of such extraction requires intention, engagement, awareness, and surrender to balance and nurture the dynamic facets of our own humanness. Well-being requires both personal agency, which, yes, is a privilege, and interwoven structures of support and belonging. We might feel relaxed after a massage, but true well-being emerges only through the sustained practice of leaning into the kinship we share, the double entendre of our common things. Perhaps the most misguided notion about well-being is that it's a solitary pursuit, wherein the responsibility falls on individuals to succeed or fail, rather than on our communal web. In Fariha Roishan's book, Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind, 
The author tracks her personal experience of seeking healing from trauma while simultaneously exposing the wellness industrial complex and its myriad failures. Capitalism tricks us into believing that we don't need each other, the author poignantly shares. Somehow, glimmers are possible under extraordinary circumstances. Our teachers here are those who touch ecstatic aliveness in cycles of profound grief, who praise the rising sun in war zones. I recently heard meditation teacher Tara Brock respond when a student asked about how to stay connected to life while facing the staggering uncertainty of a child's diagnosis. The doorway to well-being is always through the heart, she said softly. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Pablo Neruda if each day falls. Well-being is both a practice and a reservoir of having opened to the fullness of our felt experience, having sat on the rim of the well of darkness and fished for falling light many times over. Jarvis J. Masters, a Buddhist writer and teacher who endured a mind-boggling 21 years of solitary confinement based on wrongful conspiracy charges, offers this sage reflection in his memoir. Over the years, I've been asked when it was that I saw the light, had a dream, or heard a voice. What experience created a reverberation that transformed me from the person I was then to the person I am today? The truth of the matter is that I have never changed. Rather, I have simply discovered who I've always been, the young child who knew that his life mattered, that he could make a difference in the world, and that he was born to fly. Jarvis J. Masters, That Bird Has My Wings. Jarvis rediscovered the life that matters within him. To me, the 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi's timeless question, do you make regular visits to yourself, offers us a compass. What could come from giving ourselves permission to meet our experience with consistency and honesty and generosity? As it happens, I do make regular visits to myself. I'm fortunate to live on the rim of a trail system in the vast landscape of northern New Mexico, My wonder hour, which I hold in grateful contrast to the happy hours of my younger years, is the early morning, a time that favors contemplation and communion. It's known as Brahma Muhurta in India, the hour of God, and referenced by David in Psalm 5. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Cold air in my lungs, solid ground beneath my feet. I make my way along the trails around my home slowly unspooling my heart to the juniper, the chamisa, and the pine. They receive with fraternity all that which I have to give. Most mornings, by the time the sun has pushed up the day, I can sense, along with care for the broken-hearted bits, an embodied enoughness. It's a remembered hum in my human heart. To me, this is what well-being must be. And it's priceless. Thanks so much for listening. If you find value in these essays, here's how you can support the guest house. Become a subscriber at seanparel.substack.com and please rate, review, and share your favorite episode with a friend. I'll leave you with an original song by Serena Joy Bixby for all of us still learning what it means to be human.
Is it love? Is it hate? Grief or heartache or what does it mean to be human? Is it tears? Is it laughter? Is it not knowing what comes after? What does it mean to be human? Well, I'm sure I don't This life, where it goes, the days come, the days go, and I'm still human. Oh, one thing I know for sure is I'm looking. What it means being